Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Overheard at the Clubhouse. This is our podcast at Gentleman's Journal, where we speak to our favourite writers, contributors, photographers, illustrators, and friends of the magazine to discuss their work in the pages of Gentleman's Journal and beyond. And today, to celebrate the launch of our new summer issue, a brilliant, beautiful thing, we are sitting down with one of the writers who's very kindly let us excerpt a brilliant chapter from his new book, That man is Dana Brown, and that book is called Dilettante, True Tales of Excess, Triumph and Disaster. And the book covers Dana's time as he climbs the formidable masthead at Vanity Fair across the 90s and noughties, when I think it's fair to say that magazine publishing, and particularly that magazine, was at its very height, its golden age. And today, Dana tells us what it felt like to be scooped up into the upper echelons of Manhattan society, how he and A.A. Gill almost single-handedly took down the seniest power restaurant in New York, and the moment he realised that perhaps the magazine party was slowly coming to an end. Enjoy! Dana Brown, thank you so much for joining us on, we call this Overheard at the Clubhouse. Well, thank you for having me, John. I'm a huge fan of your magazine. Sorry to interrupt you there. Well, it's very sweet of you to say so because you, of course, have worked in the powerhouse of magazines that anyone who's ever worked in magazines aspires to. Um, obviously, Vanity Fair at its kind of height and pomp. But particularly for me, I loved your book because I've got a kind of fascination with the 1990s, having been a child of the 90s. But particularly 1990s America, which seems to me this kind of glossy golden age. When you think about Manhattan in that era and the world of publishing and the, the 90s in general, what are the kind of sights and smells and sounds that, that float before your eyes, so to speak? It's funny you say that because it's like I, I, in my head I always think of, and it's part of the reason I, I, I think people are fascinated by the 90s and especially a sort of younger generation that was that was a little younger during it than you know I was in, in the thick of it, um, and we we always sort of idolized the thing that came before us. You know what I mean? Yeah. The thing that we saw as a kid that was unattainable, um, but was in the culture and in the zeitgeist. Um, you know, the '90s was a, was a really interesting interesting time. You know, it was it was sort of the last gasp uh, before technology. First of yeah. all. You know, so you didn't you didn't have cell phones. I mean, obviously there were, but no one had cell phones. Uh, there was no internet. New York was still, you know, you would leave the house at night, and and there were surprises. You know, life doesn't have surprises anymore. Um, everything is planned out. You know, when you when you're going to a restaurant, you go online and you look at the menu and you figure out what you're going to eat before you even get there. You know, ooh, that the the steak looks good or whatever. Um, it was full of surprises, and and it was full of meeting new people, because sometimes you you couldn't connect with your friends because there was no way yeah. to connect with them. But it really was the the sort of fantasy of New York of the '70s and '80s, from from sort of punk rock to the to the club scene, still sort of existed in the '90s. It was still there. New York was still a little edgy. Um, you know, you could still buy drugs on the street. There there was still it was there was still a criminal element to it. And, and there was no technology, and so, so it was just still a little bit wild. And, and I think all that, you know, it's funny because I think, I think technology in 9-11 really started to change New York um, yeah. in, in many ways. I think, I think the financial world and money, became, you know, actual capital 
became the new cultural capital at a certain yeah. point in the 2000s. And the 90s was the last moment, you know, before all that stuff. There were, there were no, you know, the Kardashians were just babies in the 90s. Um, <laughs> that stuff just didn't exist. There wasn't this obsession with, with, with getting rich and, and wealth and bottle service. And um, it was just still kind of wild. Yeah. And you came as an outsider into that scene and very quickly kind of got sucked in in a rather unlikely way to this kind of high Beaumont, I suppose you might say. What, what do you remember? What were your first memories of, of New York, I suppose? And how did you get sucked up into this um, orbit of celebrities and power players? Well, you know, it was sort of it was sort of a happy accident in my life. You know, I was I'm, I'm from New York. I, I mm. you know, I grew up sort of in and around New York City. Um, and, you know, I was sort of aimless in my my early 20s. I was playing in bands. I was living in, in the East Village in New York, which is, you know, I don't even know what the equivalent of London is, but like a Camden or something like that. It was yeah. sort of cool and a little rough and kind of fun. And. I was working in restaurants. I was I was making a living in restaurants. I had I had sort of no idea what I was going to do with my life. I was, you know, 19, 20, 21, and I got a job at sort of what turned out to be kind of the media fashion hotspot in New York, which was a restaurant called 44, which was in a hotel called the Royalton Hotel, which was kind of the cool new hotel in the late 80s, early 90s. And through that job, I, you know, we, we were known as the Condé Nast Cafeteria because all the Condé Nast editors would come and have lunch there. And then all the kids from Condé Nast would come and drink after work. And I sort of randomly met Graydon Carter. And I, I knew who he was, but I didn't know anything about that world. And for some bizarre reason that, that you know, even he sort of still can't explain to me this day, he was looking for an assistant. He decided to look outside the usual the usual circles uh, of you know Columbia Journalism School graduates and Harvard graduates yeah. and Rhodes Scholars, which were sort of typical applicants for him. And he just he he just wanted to hire someone who he thought was going to work hard, had some street smarts, and was going to come in and just sort of learn at his feet. And he gave me this this chance, and I I didn't think I was going to last very long. Frankly, I hadn't gone to college. I wasn't a good student. I could barely type, but I had this sort of work ethic, and I just went for it. I just I just busted my ass uh, and and got sucked into this place. And you know, before I knew it, I was you know flying business class to Los Angeles and and renting a BMW convertible and staying at the the Bel Air Hotel for two weeks and hanging out at the Viper Room and the Chateau Marmont pretty quickly you know and it was a really uh you know it was an interesting transition for me you speak about in the book and there's certainly a kind of an undercurrent that maybe Graydon liked you because you were also a kind of a slight out, outsider insider figure that maybe he'd been the same when he kind of first got that role and he didn't want necessarily the polished um people who were born to that world yeah, I think there's something to that. I didn't know that at the time. You know, yeah. we were talking uh, before about New York City in the 90s. And, and this is sort of a key. You know, New York was always about reinvention, right? It would attract a certain kind of person here, whether you were from the Midwest or, by the way, you know, London even. Um, you know, you would come to New York and you would sort of become this thing 
that you had wanted to be. Like there's, there was a certain person that was attracted to New York and you would come here and you could be whoever you want. Yeah. And whatever you were was sort of left back where you came from. Um, when, when I started working for Graydon at Vanity Fair, I just assumed, you know, the name Graydon Carter, I, I thought he was, you know, born on some manor somewhere and had servants and, you know, he was wearing Anderson and Shepard suits and, and yeah. beautiful clothes and, and hunting world bags and just everything was so highly curated that I just sort of assumed that his background was, was what was in the pages of the magazines. But he really wasn't, you know, he was from the suburbs of Canada, and he had sort of arrived in New York as an outsider also. And I think there was there was a sort of kinship there of, you know, I always wondered, and I never really asked him, you know, was there someone that sort of, that sort of opened doors for him who had a sim, you know, was, was this a sort of, I hate to use the term paying it forward, but was it some version of that? Because it, he was, you know, he was not, you know, he was, he was not some entitled, kid from somewhere who was born into this world. He sort of he sort of just fell in love with it and created himself in this world and, and sort of became it and, and became it very successfully. You know, I mean he yeah. had a twenty five year run and I think I think the outside view is this of Graydon is the same view that I had when I when I first met him and got pulled into that. And and I think it was not the truth. And I think there were, you know, frankly at Condé Nast, I think there were a lot of outsiders, you know, just kind of like playing dress up and pretending and trying to get by. Um, but you don't know that when you first come in. So when you did first come in, what was your abiding memory? What's the kind of atmosphere like of, of, of the office at, at that stage? And what was the actual job of being an assistant to Graydon Carter? What does it consist of? Well, it was, you know, I was sort of not trusted with anything important, frankly. You know, I was fetching coffee, I was delivering, you know, every morning he would come in with a giant stack of manuscripts and notes and story ideas with names written on them, and I would just sort of run around the office delivering them, you know, filing and, and things like that. I mean, it was really, it was mindless, easy work, and as long as you worked hard and got it done, you could look good. Um, which is which is how I, I sort of survived. Um, you know, I'd never worked in an office before. I didn't know how to tie a tie when I went to interview with him. And it was a strange experience. You know, Condé Nast at the time, and, and I think it's different now, you know, it was, an, it was an interesting place, the mix of people. You know, you had these brilliant Ivy League educated text editors, um, you know, who, who worked with the writers, but then, you know, there was there were a lot of you know in the early '90s, it was it was harder to be gay in the world than it is now, and there were a lot of of gay men in the in the fashion departments. You know, wearing you know loud suits and you know these sort of bizarre characters and just you know discussions of culture and 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 art. Um, it was it was kind of astounding to me, you know, to to be around this and not not by the way. I dressed like shit. I didn't know anything about art at the time or literature. And so it was kind of amazing that these people cared so much about culture, about fashion, yeah. about the way they dressed, about, you know, that it was it was this side of life that I hadn't been exposed to yet. And it was sort of intoxicating, you know what I mean? I wanted to be part of it and I wanted to learn more and I wanted to sort of study it at the feet of all these people who just seemed to know so much about the world. You mentioned the word intoxicated there, and I suppose we can't talk about that period without the idea that maybe it was a lot of fun in lots of different ways. Was there a culture of, 
expense accounts and partying? And is it as much fun as I'm imagining? Uh, you know, I mean, yes. The, the short answer is is yes. You know, I think in the, in the book I referred to it as sort of discovering that the publishing business in the 90s, there was like essentially institutionalized drinking. Um, mm. It was just part of what we did. And there were sort of no limits and no bounds. There was always booze around. People had booze in their offices. You know, they'd invite you in for a whiskey at the, you know, after five o'clock if they were sitting there, some editor. Um, but that was, yeah, I mean, listen, I have to be honest with you. I was a 21-year-old kid when I went in there and I, I you know, I was still, I think I was 22 when I did my first traveling yeah. with Graydon as his assistant. And there was no, you know, I, I, I would go and get $10,000 worth of cash from the petty cash department. Like everything was like, it was so shocking to me who had no money. And by the way, I was making like $15,000 at that yeah. time. You know, you could sort of survive on that in New York, but all of a sudden I had access to parties and free booze and, and an expense account and petty cash. And, you know, it was pretty amazing, but it was, it was, I, I, I don't think we could have gotten away with it these days. I just think things have sort of, I think you'd get in trouble or called into HR or whatever. Um, but back then it was just part of the business. It was a very mm. social business and socializing was a big part of that business. And a big part of socializing was, was drinking and and by the way, drugs. There were a lot of drugs around too. You know, New York was was full of drugs in the '90s, and that was part of it. You you write brilliantly about some of the big parties, and of course, the most famous one, I suppose, is the Vanity Fair Oscars party. What what do you remember of that time? And, and were you very natural around people who were very obviously famous or influential? Did you find that daunting? Yeah, I I, I absolutely did, and this sort of goes this goes to your last question too. It's like how, when you're in a room full of movie stars or sitting at a table with a bunch of movie stars, it's like they have no idea who you are. You're some kid. I looked like I was 15 at that point. And I was really good at drinking. Like I could drink and that became my like, you know, superhero's cape or whatever. It was like, that's how I managed to do it. But <laughs> it was, you know, when the Vanity Fair Oscar party started and the first one I went to was 95, the first one was 94. It was a kind of an intimate affair. It wasn't yeah. a huge party. It was a few hundred people. It was, I mean, and, and I'm not kidding when I say it was essentially the VIP section of the most famous club in the world. I mean, it was only famous people. You know, you would walk through a crowd and it would be Tom Cruise, Mel Gibson, Oprah Winfrey. Like there was no quote unquote riffraff. Like it was a tight list. You had to be a recognizable face or big name in the business or billionaire to get in. And you would literally recognize every single person in there. And you kind of knew that you weren't a recognizable figure and, you know, it could sort of get to you if you're like, God, what do these people think of me? They think this, who's this, is he a party crasher? Who's this kid that's here? And then, you know, then the party started growing. You would get to know people over the years. You know, I, I spent 23 years or, or, or 20 years going out to LA to that Oscar party. And you would get to know more and more people. And, and you know, and it did become, it almost became like a, like a, a college reunion or something every year. You would sort yeah. of start seeing the, the person you sat to sat at the table next to the year before. You would see them, and they would introduce you to this friend. Um, so you sort of you sort of get your sea legs under you after a few years. But it's incredibly intimidating at first. There was a piece in the Spectator yesterday, I think, um, that calls Tom Cruise the last real movie star, and they speak about the reason that 
we're so obsessed with the new Top Gun thing is because they just don't make people like him anymore. And celebrities seem to shine a lot less brightly now. And especially than they did, I suppose, when they were on the cover of Vanity Fair in the 90s. Do you think celebrities changed in some way or the way we think about celebrities has, has changed since you were there? I think completely. I mean, I think, you know, looking back, the 90s were the sort of last gasp of the celebrity culture that had been dominant throughout the previous century. Um, you know, the, these were highly protected movie stars. They were protected by the studio system. There was a publicity PR sort of like magic circle that protected these people. The press sort of protected these people because they wanted access to them. And you didn't know, you know, everything that was, that was out in the public about these celebrities was controlled. Everything yeah. was controlled. You know, I think with technology and social media, I think that has changed a lot. I think celebrities have taken over their own narrative in many ways and are much more comfortable sort of exposing another side of them to the world, you know? And I think the world has gotten used to that and they like to, to sort of humanize our movie stars and make them relatable. And I think social media has had that effect, that and the internet. Except Tom Cruise. Like, I, I don't know if Tom Cruise is on social media. Tom Cruise is still a complete mystery. You know, you hear a lot about him and it sounds like he leads a very strange life and has a very odd thoughts on, on things. But I, I, I you know, is, is Tom Cruise the last movie star? I kind of think he is. And, and mm. you know, Top Gun, they, they don't really make movies like that anymore unless you have a Tom Cruise behind it. And... You know, he's still a mystery. There is still a sense of control over his publicity and his narrative that I think a lot of movie stars have kind of given up on. This is not a, a direct segue on from Tom Cruise, but I, there's amazing candor in your book and you're very honest about some of the people you met. Who, who do you think, looking back now, were the most despicable or least likable celebrities or figures that you, you, you cross paths with? <laughs> oh, wow. That's really, that's really interesting. Um... I, you know, I do, you know, it's funny, I, I mentioned Mel Gibson before, um, and, and I think I had sort of bumped into the Oscar party a few times before he ran into, pro, you know, before all the, all the drunk driving anti-Semitism yeah. rants, like mad. I mean, by the way, this is, this is, you know, Mel Gibson was a certifiable movie star in the 80s and 90s. Like, you know, he was one of the biggest movie stars in the world, and... Now, then when you start to find out a little bit more about what his life actually is and what he's really like, you know, and this goes back to this idea of protecting movie stars. Someone like Mel Gibson, his thoughts on religion and politics and all the, the mad stuff that we would learn about him later, you know, yeah. they, these guys were protected from that stuff. And then all of a sudden that stuff was exposed. And so people could really make a choice whether they wanted to like this person and see their films anymore. But I, I feel, I don't know why I'm not going to single out Mel Gibson. No. <laughs> I feel like I, I, he seemed a bit like a dick when I would okay. see him at the Oscar party. I remember like kind of once running into him in the, in the men's bathroom and he was sort of making a scene. And, and, and I was like, God, he doesn't seem like a good guy. This was, of course, way before all the stuff started coming out. Um, I didn't, you know, it's funny. I, I... You've, you've put me on the spot in a way, and I yeah. wish I had a great story about someone behaving really, really poorly. But I just, I just, I can't think of one off the top of my head, which is a drag because that sounds like uh, it would have been fun had I remembered a bad story about somebody. 
Not at all. It's a tough question. And you're not a mean guy. If the book is very good-hearted, I think we should definitely say there's nothing horrible in it. The the subtitles, of course. If I if I yeah. if I had a great story about someone behaving horribly, I totally would have given it to you. I just can't <laughs> think of one off the bat. I I always had sort of like nice nice conversations and run-ins with people. That's good. The the subtitle of the book is True Tales of Excess, Triumph, and Disaster. I think we touched on the excess a bit, but what about the triumph and disaster? What to you is your the moment you're most proud of or that most kind of when you were writing about it made you I don't know feel nostalgic or kind of swell with some pride and then after that maybe we'll talk about the things that didn't go right or the things you think you got wrong I never gave myself much credit during my hmm. run at Vanity Fair which was from uh, 94 to 2018 uh, Graydon retired at the beginning of 2018 and, and you know most of his staff was pushed out uh, a few months later I you know I write about uh, A.A. Gill a lot in the book, and Adrian was a very dear friend of mine. He was the first writer that I started working with, um, I think in, in, it was like the year 2000, I was introduced to him and we started talking about pieces. And, you know, I brought him over, the first piece that he wrote for Vanity Fair was a restaurant review, and, and I mean, I assume your listeners and readers are uh, aware of who A.A. Gill was, and... and just what an amazing rest writer and restaurant critic he was and that he could just he could shut a restaurant or make a restaurant with one review and we didn't quite have that culture uh, of what Adrian did over here in the restaurant reviewing space and Graydon had a bad experience at a restaurant once and it was kind of the hot restaurant in New York it was a restaurant called 66 it was a, a Chinese restaurant a very very upscale Chinese restaurant and he said, bring over, let's bring over Adrian and go review this. So Adrian came over and we put a big group together and we went to review this restaurant. And he just utterly trashed it. I mean, it was laugh out loud funny. One of the funniest things, it was the first sort of big piece I got in the magazine. And it got so much attention in New York, in not just the restaurant world, but the media world. It was like everyone was talking about it. And again, this was pretty much pre-internet, so there was no, had this been on the internet, it would have, it would have been a viral sensation. Um, but, but it just utterly was laugh out loud funny, but it was right. You know, Adrian was usually right about things. Yeah. Um, but it was laugh out loud funny. Everyone was talking about it. The, the press was writing about the, the, I think more words. There was a, a cover story in the New York Observer, which was kind of a, a local paper in New York City for the sort of media elite. And they wrote a piece about the piece that was longer than the actual piece. Yeah. It was such a sort of earth rattling moment. And just to be, to have gone to the restaurant with Adrian and had him, you know, so basically giving the restaurant review in real time, speaking these lines. I mean, it was so funny. Um, and just to see the power, the power that a Vanity Fair had and, and the power that a writer can have about something. Because I think the restaurant, it, it never really recovered. And I think it shut wow. down about two years later. Um, but it was, it was the beginning of me understanding the power that we had yeah. and, and the power that these writers have in your hand. And the responsibility also, you know, I mean, it was a great responsibility and we, we felt that, you know, I think the, you know, journalism has hit sort of a rough patch these days. You know, you have Trump calling the media the enemy of the people and all this really yeah. frightening stuff. But, you know, we took it really seriously and we took sort of the, the, the facts seriously. We took culture seriously and we understood the impact that these words could have. How did that feel when you read the review back? Was there a kind of a, a wince of of anxiety maybe 
Totally. Yeah, I totally. I, I, you know, you said before that I seem like a nice guy, and I think I am, and and I'm not out there to sort of like trash people and kill people. So it was a little. Yes, it was a little difficult for me, and, and I had that with Adrian quite a bit, where where you know I would arrange a story with somebody, and then we would go together and do it, and you know you would realize halfway through that you're you know we did a story on there was sort of a condominium building boom in New York in the 2000s, and Adrian and I went out with a celebrity real estate agent that、mm. was given to us by another friend of ours, and he was showing us very high end. Buildings and taking us on tours, and we were in the back of a limousine with him. And I think he thought he was, this was his moment to get into Vanity Fair. That this was going to be a story about real estate and about him. And I just knew in the back of my mind, I was like, "Fuck!" I was like, "Great, Adrian's going to kill this guy, and I'm the one that's <laughs> going to have to deal with it." And I did. And he just utterly trashed this poor guy, who was livid. And then, flash forward like a few years, and I went to a birthday dinner for a friend of mine, and. It was about 15 people, and she was sort of a friend of a friend. And we get to the thing, and we're all—you know—that is that musical chairs thing when you go to a, a big dinner where you're not, where、mm. it's not seated, and there aren't name cards. And I look across, and I see the guy, and he happens to be her real estate agent, and he's just glaring at me.、Oh, no. And I'm like, oh my god, oh my god. And then everyone starts to sit, and the only two seats are on the other side of the table. And and it's just he and I that are standing, and I had to sit next to this guy for like two and a half hours, you know, two years after this this story sort of semi ruined his career, and it was just horrifying. It was so so awful, and I just couldn't. I could barely get a word out. I just sat there looking into my plate guiltily. Did you manage to pacify him in some way? Did you explain yourself? I think. In, in probably not well enough. I think he just sort of. I think he he was paying more attention to the person on his right、uh, yeah. and trying to avoid eye contact with me. Another one of the、um, huge characters and incredible writers that you worked with was Christopher Hitchens. What's your abiding memory of him? Because his life was as big off the page as it was on it. I think it's probably fair to say. Yeah, you know the thing about Christopher—it's funny because I—I think the sort of public perception of these these public figures is very different than the sort of reality. And Christopher got really well known with his debates, and he would just cut people down in debates. Was a brilliant sort of scholar and mind、um, had had a an incredible memory also, and and but you know he was a really lovely, sweet, fun. Guy, and you know, obviously his his drinking is is sort of legendary,、um, yeah. as it as it should be. I mean, he was he was quite a drinker, and I would love when he was in New York to have the opportunity to to sit down and throw down a few with him. It was always was always wonderful,、um, but he was he was. You know, he was very egalitarian. Like he wasn't this sort of like snobby. Person that looked down on anyone, you know, he he rarely punched down. I mean, I don't、yeah. know. I guess there was the Mother Teresa stuff. You can call that punching down, although I wouldn't. I don't think he punched down. You know, he really、no. punched up. And in real life, he was just he was incredibly encouraging and friendly, and fun, and and never lorded his intelligence over people. You know,、uh, whether he knew he was smarter than you or smarter than everyone at the table. You never got the sense that that was his sort of moral compass. That he did not believe that he was better than anybody.、Uh, no. Christopher was just one of those. You know, there were a lot of really bright lights at that place, 
and Christopher was one of the brightest. Can we talk a little bit about the, the, the kind of art of editing? Because it's, it seems to be something that is less and less appreciated now. And certainly, I know in, in, in the magazine world, your work goes through fewer editors probably. Um, and certainly, we just don't have the resources to do the kind of rigorous back and forth that perhaps you used to do at Vanity Fair. What was it like feeling like you had someone else's kind of words under your control? And did you ever get those furious kind of infamous notes from people who have circled a single semicolon? and said, how dare you? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I do think it's different. I mean, obviously you guys, and, and I love, again, I love what you guys are doing. And I love that you have a print edition that you guys take care in assembling. It's a beautiful, beautiful product. And it's so nice to see that because it's just, there are fewer and fewer in the world. And, uh, you know, I hope you guys are around for a long time. We had such a big staff. I mean, we had hundreds of people on staff. We had dedicated, you know, you would have a dedicated copy editor or two to a story sometimes. You would have a dedicated fact checker or two sometimes to a story. The, the amount of care that went into every single sentence and page in that magazine, you know, that's, that was our job. You know, before there was an internet that our that was our job like you would spend a week and a half to two weeks on one story if, you know every single line every single word you know you would have the fact checkers in your office three times a day just going through here's what we found we got to change this we got to change this you would be relaying that and sitting with the writer trying to well how can we say this in an elegant way but we need to change this fact um, you know, fighting with a copy editor, like, no, 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 we, we don't want to change that one word, we don't want that semicolon, we don't want that, they hate semi, you know, you get to know writers, you know, this writer hates semicolons, but M dashes are okay, this writer hates M dashes, but, you know, this writer likes short sentences, this one likes longer sentences. You know, I think in the book, I sort of described it as, you know, you're a director, really. And you've been given this screenplay and you're trying to get it onto the screen and you have a cinematographer and you have a wardrobe person and you have the actors. That's what it was. You know, we had legal editors. You know, the legal would come in and do a, a couple legal passes and be like, you can't say this, you can't say this, you need to go back to them for comment. It was just this constant juggling act of the writer here. The writer wasn't in the office working on this with you. It was sort of you, you had this team of staff and it was just this back and forth and you, you, you get to know what writers like and what writers don't like. Some writers did, would give you a piece and be like, I don't care what you do with it. I've been paid. Do whatever you want with it. And others were incredibly detailed and wanted to see every single version of it. And if there was a comma, if, if you made a decision without them with a copy and were like, yeah, 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 you can put a comma there. And they saw it, they were like, there shouldn't be a comma there. Why is there a comma there? <laughs> Some writers are like that. They're very, very specific about their prose. But, you know, you forget, and, and you will know this, because, again, you guys have print. Sometimes you're, like, 15 lines over, and you have to cut 15 lines, and, and there are very specific spaces where those 15 lines can come from. And you might spend a whole day going through a piece, just this one page of a piece, to do this puzzle of, like, if I get rid of this one word here, that'll bring that up a line, and that'll bring... Like, it was this incredible puzzle that you had to put together of like the minutia of just how can I literally take one word out here to bring this up a line and you would study it like it was the bible you know what I mean like how do I make this happen 
And I just think a lot of that's, if there's no print component, that's pretty much gone, you know? Well, we've alluded to it there, but I can tell you that the, the magazine world is certainly not as it was. When did you first start to notice that the party was dwindling, so to speak? The real catalyst in America, and I don't know about in, in the UK, was the, the 2008 crash. And I, I connect more dots in my book because it's a lot easier to look back and realize what it is. But there was a, there was a period, I think it was 2007, I think it was, 2000, I, I'm getting some of these wrong, but it was like 2006, 2007, 2008. It was like Twitter, iPhone, um, 2008 was the financial crash, and I think it was also the year that Facebook started selling advertising. Yeah. That was in that one period. And, and that was the moment at the end of 2008. At 2009, advertising started falling across the industry everywhere. And, and as you know, print, the, advertising was our lifeblood. Advertising is what paid the bills. Advertising was basically our only revenue source. That was it. We'd, we'd, you know, that was the business model for 100 years, if not more, for magazines and newspapers. With dwindling ad advertising pages, you start losing editorial pages. So you can have fewer stories in, in a magazine, or your stories start getting shorter, which means you're using fewer writers. So writers aren't getting paid as much. It was just, it hit all at once, and it just started getting worse and worse. Then we started selling less magazines on the newsstand. Then newsstands started going out of business. Like, it was just this whole thing. And meanwhile, you had Facebook, you had Google. They were starting to steal all the advertising from us because they had a better better model, frankly. You know, I'm sorry. Yeah. It's like they were able to target ads very, very specifically at consumers in a way that we just couldn't. So that was really it. And then and social media at the same time, you know, people were, were spending more and more time on social media. You know, I, I, it was it was you know your Facebook page, your your you know Instagram. I think was 2011 or twelve or 13, something like that, maybe two thousand ten. Yeah. You were basically curating your own magazine. You know, that's what it suddenly was. You had an, an image and a caption, and you had your page and you had your followers slash subscribers. You know, and it just started to steal our thunder. And we kept blaming it on the 2008 recession. We kept saying, you know what? Things are going to get better. Things are going to get better. This is just a blip. We'll make some cost cuts. Things will come back. And they just never came back. They never came back. And it was really, that's the sort of moment that that print really started, started dying. And then everyone just started moving all their resources into digital. You know, that's yeah. when that started happening. And did you start to feel like you were... Uh part of the old guard or did you were you very kind of active in making sure that you future-proofed yourself to use quite a futury word were you looking to to the future in some way uh no i'm such an idiot i'm i did <laughs> not future-proof myself at all in fact i kind of did the other i think i aligned with this sort of old guard which is always okay. you know, the first one to get put against the wall and shot in the head um listen i had opportunities to go do the digital stuff at vanity fair many 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 times and you know i was the sort of quote unquote young editor you know i was a deputy editor by that point you know i was pretty, probably, you know i was in my late 30s around 40 so i was like the young guy i had no, i had no clue i wasn't on social media i didn't know anything and yeah. i didn't like it and it scared me and i didn't want to be part of it and so I really sort of rejected it. I mean, I, I listen, I, I had my toe in it a little bit, 
but I never believed in it. I never, I loved what I did. I loved, I loved working with writers. I loved finding stories. I loved, I loved that moment when a writer who's been out on an assignment, you know, would send me that manuscript. And I knew it was going to be a lot of work and I knew it was going to have to be cut. And I knew that I would have to spend like a day just sitting there off on my own reading this thing, waiting for it to sort of reveal its essence to me that I could then help the right. You know what I mean? I loved that so much. And that's what I wanted to keep doing with my life. The pace of digital did not appeal to me. I mean, it was just, it was constant. And that didn't appeal to me. I like the sort of pace of taking your time and yeah. savoring this thing. So no, I t listen. I totally screwed myself. I, I I really was was not. Yeah, yeah. And the, the end, I guess, for that period came, as you say, in 2017 and 2018 when Graydon Carter left Vanity Fair, and I think pretty swiftly yeah, yeah. any Graydon Carter acolytes were given the boot. Right. The new regime yeah, was we in. Were, yeah, and and this, you know, and it's funny because it, it's ironically in my book. You know, I had started for Graydon. Graydon had been there for about a year and a half when I started in 94. And he was yet to sort of cut off the heads of, of the sort of old regime, the people that had worked for Tina Brown who were sort of poisoning the well. And I remember sitting there at my little desk watching people being brought in and walked out and, and walked out by security. And I was like, holy shit, like, this is crazy. All these people are getting fired. But you kind of have to do it. You kind of have to do it. And I, I don't begrudge the, the new editor for doing it, but you know, Graydon walked out of there. I think we finished the, the last Hollywood issue uh, in 2018 was his last issue and was our last issue. And it was ironically on Valentine's Day that it all started. And you know, we, we'd sat around the office for months. You know, so Valentine's Day is the middle of February. So January to the middle of February, we were like, I wonder when it's gonna happen. I wonder when we're all getting fired. We knew we were all getting fired. It was just a matter of when. And then it started happening, and it was like one by one, you were marched in, you were given a little spiel, uh, you were handed a little packet with your what to do with your health insurance, and and you were out. And I think it was, there was like 22 of us in in over the course of 48 hours, 22 of us, most of the top of the masthead, and then there were a few, a few that came in the following weeks and months. So it was probably it ended up being about 30 people were were pushed out at that in in 2018. And what do you think of the product now, Vanity Fair? I, you know what? I made the mistake of trashing it to New York Magazine a few months ago, and I felt sort of guilty about that. Um, I, 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 I don't really read it, frankly. It, it doesn't seem like I'm the target audience for it, so I don't feel like I can fairly judge it. Um, yeah. I think... You know, I think it takes a while for a new editor. When a new editor is brought in as a change agent, uh, as she was, which is the Graydon Carter Vanity Fair will not work for this era. We need something new. You know, they brought in a new editor to execute that. That takes a few years. You know, that takes time to sort of build your staff and come up with your new identity and, and do all this. And I think that was in the process when a global pandemic hit, which couldn't have made things easier and will probably even push Prince descent uh, even a little quicker. So I, I don't know. It's it, listen. It's not aimed at me. It's not. Uh, it's not my kind of thing. It's not my cup of tea. Hopefully, they. You know, I still have a lot of friends that work there. I hope they can make it work. Maybe they know what they're doing. Maybe they are developing an audience. Um, I have absolutely no idea. 
I prefer Gentleman's Journal, Joe. So um, absolutely, I, I'm, I but truly am. By the way, I, oh, I truly that. am such a fan of the magazine and what you guys are doing. It feels like. Well, it's just, it feels like, I got, I want to say retro, but it's not even retro because it doesn't feel old. Um, but it just feels like you guys, you guys have an appreciation for what a, a print magazine is. And I know you do much more than just print, but I think the fact that you guys are still doing it and putting out this beautiful, beautifully designed, just sort of luxurious product that, that is not down market, that is, is smart and, and culturally astute, I think is just... It's so great to see, and and you guys are running an excerpt from my book, and I'm like, I'm so excited that I'm going to be in print. Like I'm so yeah. excited. Like I didn't think anyone. I was like, well, well, no one's. There's going to be no excerpt of this in print. It just doesn't exist anymore. So I'm really, really excited and, and grateful that you guys have uh, have done this. Well, that's very gratifying. Thank you very much for saying that. Before we let you go, because I could talk about this stuff all day. It's my favorite topic. Yeah. But I wondered about the process of actually writing the book because it spans 25 years at least and there are kind of details in there that go back so far. I wonder if you had been making notes from day one in some way. You knew there was kind of, there's got to be a memoir in this somewhere. Joe, the title is Dilettante. Do you think I actually kept notes or a diary? I mean, come on. <laughs> well, that's um, what surprises no, me. I, I know. I, I, you know, it's so funny. I have like a memory like a sieve. Uh, wow. it's like, it's terrible. I don't know. Uh, like once I hit a certain point with writing of the book and I did write a lot of this during the pandemic. I, in fact, wrote kind of most of it over the course of like uh, the sort of three, four month period during the summer of 2020 when, when it was like the world's going to end. New York City was shut down. I was alone in New York City with, with doing nothing but the book and, and occasionally like putting a mask on to go like running, like which is absurd. But I, it's, it's funny when you start telling your story and writing these stories that things start coming back to you. I signed up for VF.com to get access to the old issues yeah. And every day I would go and open up an old issue and it was like a triggering mechanism. I, I had totally forgotten about this, but you know, we did a Courtney Love cover in 1995 and it was her, this kind of Baroque lighting and it looked like an old painting. She had angel wings on and a little Cupid, a little baby with, with a bow and arrow below her. And, and I suddenly it came back to me. It was like, oh my God, I remember I was sitting outside Graydon's office and they were having a cover meeting. And Graydon yelled out to me and said, and said, what do you think of Courtney Love? Do you think she's cover material? And I remember saying, like, I was like, yeah, I think so. I think she's kind of a big cultural figure. I think it's kind of cool and it's kind of a little younger for us and, and whatever. He's like, okay, let's do it. Like, it was just, it was like a, the, the, the old magazines was like a triggering mechanism for me. And, and the amount of stuff, you know, I had totally forgotten that I was a photographer for a couple years because Graydon couldn't figure out what to do with me until I was looking through an issue in like 90, the 96 issue and I saw a contributor photo of Christopher Hitchens in, 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 with my name next to it having taken it. And I was like, what the fuck is that? And suddenly I had a whole chapter because I was like, oh my God, I forgot I was a photographer and a failure of one, but I was a photographer because Graydon couldn't figure out what to do with me. And one of my assignments was to go down to Washington DC and shoot a contrib photo of Christopher and instead we just got really drunk and it was really fun and I took really shitty pictures of him and this is a shitty picture of Christopher Hitchens in the magazine. <laughs> like it was it was like a triggering mechanism and, and it was amazing to me how much stuff came back, came back to me yeah. that way. One of my favorite things is these kind of footnotes of um, 
banned words which you yes. teach us about. But I wonder if there were any other life lessons you could now distill down for us into the same kind of pithy format. What did you learn from that beacon of taste and opinion and stuff? What do you think we can all kind of take from I, that? Well, That's a big one. You know, it's tricky. I was about to say, you know, when you're a cultural curator, right? And that sounds like such a pretentious phrase, and it sort of is, but that is what you are as a magazine editor. You are the one who says like, oh, wow, I stumbled on this thing and I think it's great. You just have to believe in, like, don't be afraid to express your opinion and don't be afraid to say like, oh, this thing's great. Um, and just go with it. Like, you, you are there for a reason and you have taste and you have perspective. Just have faith in your own opinion and have faith in, in what you are seeing and be bold and be decisive when it comes to that stuff. You know what I mean? Um, don't second guess yourself. Don't second guess yourself and just sort of be decisive and go for it. And I don't know if this has shifted from generations. I've heard it, but I don't know if I necessarily believe it. It's like nothing's handed to you. Like you have to work hard to get anywhere. Like nothing is handed to you. You're gonna have to work your way up an organization or or to get recognition or you know, if, you, if you're writing, if like whatever you're doing, like it takes time, don't give up. Don't expect the doors to be opened up to you right away. Like shit takes time to sort of work your way into an industry or a business or whatever. Like just be patient and understand that that's how it works and, and don't get impatient and, and frustrated and, and angry with yourself. I think that's a thoroughly good piece of advice. And the book is brilliant, I should say. I love it. I read it in PDF form, every single word of it, which yeah, shows the yeah. dedication. I read it all on my um, yeah, laptop. Not easy. <laughs> not easy. You're so kind, Joe. <laughs> but it was yeah, joyful. That's very um, And I encourage anyone to buy it, whether you're interested in 90s publishing or Manhattan, like I am all about anything, really, because it's very, very entertaining at the very least. So thanks. Hopefully we'll um, see you when you're over in Europe, Dana. That'll be fun. Oh, uh, Joe, I, I owe you a couple of drinks. So uh, okay. next time I'm in, I'm in London, I'm going to hit you up and that'll hopefully be soon. Brilliant. Okay, cool. Well, we'll catch up soon. Thanks, man.